We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 60 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, May 11th, 2021, as yes, this podcast turns 60 with this episode. Time is flying, although when you do a new one of these things every weekday, time is going to fly. Remember, no other podcast like this in the DMV. Every weekday, out by 5 a.m., talking D.C. area sports, especially the Washington football team, and we are waiting, still waiting, on word regarding those free agent visits from Charles Leno Jr. and Bobby McCain on Monday. Did they even happen? We're not exactly positive even about that, but if they did happen, how'd they go? Is Washington going to sign one guy, maybe both guys? We heard nothing on Monday. And you know, I was thinking about this because literally like nothing was out there about these visits. I tell you what, here's how you know that Ron Rivera has got things under control. Nothing leaks out from the team anymore. 
or at the very least, nothing leaks out from the team that it doesn't want leaked out. I do think that there was some stuff leading into the draft that the team may have leaked out, i.e., we love this quarterback. No, we love that quarterback. No, we love that quarterback, etc. But in terms of unwanted leaks, I do believe that we no longer have those. I'm not declaring victory, okay? This thing can change on a dime. understand that. I'm not saying that everything has been fixed, but the phenomenon of unwanted leaks, that seems to have stopped, at least for now. As was said in the great movie Office Space, we fixed the glitch. We fixed the glitch. Yes, Ron Rivera has fixed the glitch. Ron Rivera also has cut Marcus Ball. That happened on Monday. Where are we with Washington at tight end? Because the team undeniably has undergone a drastic makeover at the tight end position this offseason, save for, of course, our TE1, Logan Thomas. We'll talk about that coming up next segment. Special guest on the show on this Tuesday, the radio voice of Kentucky football and basketball, Tom Leach. He's going to tell us all about Washington's first round pick, Kentucky linebacker, Jamin Davis. The Washington football team on Monday, by the way, announcing that rookie minicamp will be taking place this Friday and Saturday. Also on the show, another wild game for the Wizards on Monday night. It is incredible to me the frequency with which the Wizards are playing these wild, high-scoring, close games. We had another one of those on Monday night, albeit a loss at the Atlanta Hawks, but a loss in which history was made. Russell Westbrook, now officially the NBA's all-time leader in regular season triple-doubles, 182 surpassing Oscar Robertson's 181. And when it comes to the Wizards, who still seem like a good bet to make the NBA's play-in tournament, we'll talk about how we will be having more fans at Capital One Arena. Yes, sir. Washington, D.C. Hello. Welcome to the party. A major announcement from D.C. on Monday. The mayor, Muriel Bowser, announcing that the city does plan to lift a number of COVID-19 pandemic-induced restrictions on May 21st with a full reopening of the city On June 11th, you will have increased capacity at Wizards and Capitals games, initially from 10% to 25%, then full capacity beginning on June 11th for the Nationals, outdoors at Nationals Park, 36% capacity beginning on May 14th, full capacity beginning again on June 11th. Great news, overdue news, but we'll take it. Not sure how quickly fans come back. That'll be interesting to see, but there still are going to be a bunch of mitigation rules to follow, including, yes, wearing masks. So you still got to wear your masks, but at least we are truly opening things back up. That's very good to see. By the way, I mentioned the Caps, their first round opponent in the Stanley Cup playoffs now is set. It just happens to be the team against which the Caps will play their regular season finale on Tuesday night. The Boston Bruins, game one, Caps B's going to be happening Saturday night, 7-15 at Capital One Arena. The matchup being set thanks to the Boston Bruins going to overtime in their game on Monday night against the New York Islanders, what did end up being a 3-2 overtime victory for the Bruins, who, keep in mind, are coached by Bruce Cassidy, the former Capitals head coach. He was here years ago. He was a huge flop as a Caps head coach, but he has totally rebuilt his career and has become a very respected NHL head coach. This would be like Jim Zorn becoming a very successful NFL head coach. That's kind of what Bruce Cassidy was. He was the Jim Zorn of the Caps, but he has reestablished himself to his credit, and he's done a nice job with the Bruins over the last few years. I'll talk Orioles later in the show. A win, finally, for them on Monday night in their four-game series against the Major League leading Boston Red Sox. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me, at Al Galdi. Got a lot of feedback to my F.P. Santangelo segment on Monday's podcast. I thought that that might be the case. Email from Frank in Ashburn. He writes, Al, thank you for not wading into the he said, she said aspect 
of the FP Santangelo incident. I agree with you 100% on this. The only two people who truly know the truth are those involved in the incident. The rest of us will probably never know what really happened. And then Frank goes on to say why he too was not a big fan of FP as a color commentator. Tweet from Brett Williams. Love the pod. Thank you, Brett. I really hope FP at least gets the benefit of an investigation. Really hate to think a guy can lose his career to an anonymous accusation. Yeah, I agree with you on that. The truth matters. The truth matters a lot. I don't know that we ever know the truth, but you got to at least attempt to find the truth. And maybe the truth has already been uncovered. Maybe Masson and or the Nationals feel like they found the truth, but uh, that matters a ton. You know, just because you're accused of something doesn't mean that you're guilty of something. It's always important to remember that. We have learned that lesson time and again in recent years. But of course, on the flip side, there's a thing of so many sexual misconduct situations go unreported. And so the thing of like, well, you can't believe her, like she has a vendetta or something like that. Like, no, you got to take all of this very seriously. Uh, tweet from Gary. He writes, great podcast. Thank you, Gary. Kudos for addressing the FP Santangelo situation. It's a very sad situation. Hasn't been addressed to any measure it warrants. All points well taken. Frustrating to get final definite resolution unless others come forward, a la WFT. So it's interesting, Gary, that you mentioned WFT, and I don't know that you meant to mention it in this way, but it got me to thinking, you know, there is this heightened sensitivity right now to stuff like this, right, because of the Me Too movement especially in Major League Baseball because of some of the scandal that's happened in recent years, like you think most notably of the New York Mets with their now former general manager, Jared Porter. But there's been other stuff that's popped up as well. But, you you know, I do wonder, like in this area, right, the Washington, D.C. area, an area in which the football team is in the midst of a sexual harassment scandal, for which, by the way, we are still awaiting the findings of this Beth Wilkinson investigation. I mean, well, well, you know, what is it going to be, 2040 when we finally get the results of this investigation? I mean, it's, it's something else that we're this deep in the offseason and we still have not heard anything. I mean, I get it. You want to do a good job of the investigation. Maybe the investigation is still ongoing. I, I, I understand that. But man, this thing started last July. Here we are deep into the month of May, and we have heard nothing, zero, in terms of actual concrete findings with this investigation. Anyway, because of what has happened with the Washington football team and the sexual harassment stuff, you would think there is even more of a sensitivity to this kind of a thing for the Nationals in this city with what has happened with the football team. And there should be. There should always be a sensitivity to this stuff. Like, it's wrong. If if FP is guilty of what he's accused of, it's wrong. And he should not be calling Nationals games en masse. And point blank, period. I mean, it's not even a conversation about that. Now, of course, the Washington football team has had multiple non-football issues on its plate over the last year. We hope those are in the midst of going away. We'll see. But what should not be an issue for you is going to the doctor. Has it been a while since you've seen a doctor? Are you in the midst right now of being nagged by your wife or your girlfriend or both? in terms of you need to see a doctor. Well, you know you probably should go, but who wants to go to the doctor these days? Long waits in waiting rooms, unsatisfactory appointments, impossible to get a call back if you have a question. Well, here's your solution. Dr. Matthew Mintz, a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast. Dr. Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician whose concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned personalized care in which every patient is a person, not a number. Dr. Mintz offers next day, even same day appointments, longer appointment times, 24-7 after hours access. And how about this lab work that's done in the office so you don't have to go on some 30-minute drive to get your blood drawn. Also, unlike most other concierge practices, Dr. Matthew Mintz can generate invoices for patients that can be submitted for reimbursement 
from most insurances. His office is located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center across the street from Balducci's. Dr. Matthew Mintz is a big Washington football team fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast, and he offers a free meet and greet in person or virtual so you can see if his practice is right for you. You don't have to commit to anything. Just see what kind of a vibe you get from Dr. Mintz. You'll get a great one. I can promise you on that and see if his practice is right for you. You can set up your free meet and greet by going to drmintz.com. That's drmintz.com. That's D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com. Or you can call his office. Tell his office that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, the free meet and greet. The phone number is 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician who provides medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be. And tell him Al Galdi sent you. All right, so news from the Washington football team on Monday. The team announcing the release of tight end Marcus Ball. If you are unfamiliar with the name Marcus Ball, you are forgiven. But I know that many of you, like me, are sickos when it comes to the Washington football team. So you know all about Marcus Ball. Marcus Ball, in the 2020 regular season for Washington, played in eight games and on a total of 79 offensive snaps. He had one reception for two yards on one target. Washington signed Ball in March 2020 as an unrestricted free agent. Marcus Ball had some connections to the Washington football team. He went to Ohio State 2014 through 2017, was a teammate of Dwayne Haskins in his 2017 freshman season, was a teammate of Terry McLaurin over his first three seasons with the Buckeyes, 2015 through 2017. Ball was signed by the then Oakland Raiders as an undrafted free agent in April 2018, got cut in their cut down to 53 going into the 2018 season, played for the San Diego Fleet in the now defunct Alliance of American Football in 2019, then was signed by, wait for it, the Carolina Panthers in April 2019. So Ball was another one of these Panther skins. Uh, He spent the entire 2019 season on the Panthers reserve slash injured list and was waived by the Panthers in February 2020. And then Ron Rivera signed Ball the next month. But the reason that I'm bringing up Marcus Ball being released this early in an installment of the podcast is Marcus Ball becomes the third tight end of at least some prominence to leave Washington this offseason, Jeremy Sprinkle was an unrestricted free agent, signed with the Dallas Cowboys on April 7th, and Washington, remember, released Thaddeus Moss on April 9th. And so what you have right now at tight end in terms of the most significant guys, obviously Logan Thomas, you have John Bates, who Washington took in the fourth round of the 2021 draft at a Boise State, you have Samis Reyes, who Washington signed on April 13th, is primed to be the first Chilean-born player to play in the NFL, but remember, has never played the sport of football at any meaningful level. So let's think about this. Washington this offseason, in an offseason in which we have all recognized depth at tight end is a major issue, right? Zero proven depth at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. In this offseason, Washington has allowed Sprinkle to leave via free agency and to a division rival, no less. Washington this offseason has cut Thaddeus Moss. Washington this offseason now has cut Marcus Ball, and Washington this offseason, as best as we can tell, wasn't a major player in free agency at the tight end position. The New England Patriots got the top two tight ends on the free agent market, and very quickly, we on March 15th, the first day of the NFL's legal tampering period, 
had multiple reports that Janu Smith, the guy who I very much wanted Washington to go after, had agreed on a contract with the Pats. And then the next day, March 16th, the second day of the NFL's legal tampering period, we had multiple reports that Hunter Henry had agreed on a contract with the Pats. New England was aggressive and gobbled up the top two free agent tight ends out there this offseason. Washington, as best as we can tell, and we don't always know everything, but wasn't really in on either guy. You certainly have not heard that Washington was in on either guy. And even if Washington was in on either guy, Washington clearly did not go all out to get either guy. So what does all of this tell us in terms of Washington's thinking at tight end, a position at which, again, there is zero proven depth beyond Logan Thomas? That was the case going into the offseason. That's still the case now. Well, I think all of this tells us three things. Number one, Washington did not like what it had beyond Logan Thomas. Ergo, Jeremy Sprinkle is allowed to lead to a division rival. Marcus Ball cut, Thaddeus Moss cut. Number two, Washington did not love what was available in free agency. This goes back to what we talked about with why Washington did not take a quarterback in the 2021 draft. There is a difference between liking someone and loving someone, truly believing in someone as a football player. Washington certainly may have liked things about Hunter Henry and John Smith, but obviously Washington didn't love either guy. Washington had all of the salary cap space, still has a bunch of cap space, and didn't go all out to get either guy. And then a third thing is this to me. Washington really believes in what it now has beyond Logan Thomas. Talking about John Bates and Samis Reyes, I don't know how you argue against any of these three conclusions at this point. Washington did not like what it had at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. Washington did not love what was available in free agency. And Washington now really does believe in what it has beyond Logan in terms of John Bates and Samis Reyes. And that may sound funny because you're talking about, again, a guy in Bates who was a fourth round pick and a guy in Reyes who has never played football at any meaningful level. But what else are we supposed to think at this point? I mean, you you wouldn't say that, well, Ron Rivera and Scott Turner just don't care about what the team has at tight end. Like in today's NFL, you have to care about what you have at tight end. And you can't sit here and say, well, they're just going to ride Logan Thomas again. Well, what if Logan Thomas gets hurt? Or what if for whatever reason, Logan Thomas slumps in the upcoming season? You can't just have one guy who you like. So I think at this point, you have to say Washington does like and does believe in what the team has at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. And look, Washington may not be done at adding to what the team has at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. But for now, this is what you're looking at. So you take a look at John Bates. Again, fourth round pick at a Boise State. John Bates is not fast for his position. He was one of the few guys who Washington took in the 2021 draft who you would not say is an athletic freak. He at the Boise State Pro Day ran a 40 of 4.84 seconds. But John Bates is big. He at that Boise State Pro Day measured as being 6'5 and 3 eighths and 250 pounds. He can block like a mother. Uh, John Bates among tight ends in the 2021 draft for Pro Football Focus was both the number two run blocker and number two pass blocker. Bates was not a dynamic pass catcher for Boise State. Five seasons with Boise State, played for the program for four of those seasons, redshirted in 2016, 46 career games, had 47 receptions, including just two touchdown catches. But Bates does have hands. Remember what Todd McShay said on day three of the 2021 draft on the ESPN telecast. Todd McShay, who I think is the best NFL draft analyst out there, said that John Bates catches the ball as well as any tight end in the 2021 draft class, not named Kyle Pitts. And John Bates does offer Ron Rivera his favorite thing on the planet, which is, yes, position flex. 
Position flex. Yes, Ron, exactly. Position flex. John Bates for Boise State played the Y in line, the X split out, and even some fullbacks. So you look at all these things and you say to yourself, well, Washington must really believe in this guy and believe in these things. Otherwise, why would Washington be doing as it has done so far at tight end this offseason? And along those lines, Samis Reyes. I mean, look, I have no idea what to expect from Samis Reyes. I think we all learned a lesson with the Thaddeus Moss saga of everyone was doing cartwheels when Washington signed him as an undrafted free agent out of LSU after the 2020 draft. And he ended up being cut by Washington multiple times, never taking a single snap for the team. Okay, so so much for the hype for Thaddeus Moss. Like if his last name was Smith, okay, and not Moss, and he wasn't Randy Moss's son, we probably would have never had the hype for the guy. Even though he did have a good career at LSU, was known as a great blocker, was a productive tight end for Joe Burrow in that all-world 2019 season that he had. But anyway, I think there was a lesson that we all took from that. Of We got to stop hyping up. We got to calm down when it comes to guys who are totally unproven with our team. And I pointed myself at that. I've been guilty of that at times. So yeah, I'm trying not to like go too nuts with the Samis Reyes stuff, but how do you read this in any way other than Washington does seem to have confidence in Samis Reyes? So Reyes played college basketball at Tulane for two seasons, graduated from Tulane in 2018, played for the Chilean national basketball team in 2019, and then in May 2020, decided to try what he had been told to try for a while, and that is football. Reyes spent 10 weeks training at IMG Academy in Florida, then worked out in front of scouts at the University of Florida's Pro Day, did so well at that Florida Pro Day that Washington actually signed him as an unrestricted free agent back in April. Samis Reyes at that Florida Pro Day generated measurables that included the following. Height of 6'5 and 3 eighths, weight of 260 pounds, 40 time of 4.65, bench press of 31 reps, of 225 pounds, vertical jump of 40 inches. This was really the first of the all-out effort by Washington in draft season here to bring in freakish athletes. Samis Reyes, per the relative athletic score metric that I've been talking about on the podcast, tested as the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL. The measurables were off the charts. If you have seen photos of Samis Reyes, and they are out there, photos of him working out without a shirt on, okay? Uh, the guy looks like a bodybuilder, okay? Again, he's a freak. He compared favorably with the best tight end by miles in the 2021 draft, the Florida tight end, Kyle Pitts, in terms of the measurables, right? Like Pitts is, is uh, very likely going to be a great tight end, but Kyle Pitts was not Samis Reyes' equal when it comes to athleticism. Pitts was a quarter of an inch taller. Reyes was 15 pounds heavier. Pitts did run a faster 40, 4.44 versus 4.65. But Reyes blew away Pitts in terms of the bench press reps at 225, 31 versus 22. And the vertical jump, 40 inches versus 33 and a half inches, just to give you a sense of the kind of athleticism that was displayed by Samis Reyes at that Florida Pro Day. Now, does that mean that he can play the position of tight end well? No, it doesn't guarantee anything along those lines. But again, Go back to the actions. Don't ever get caught up in the words of coaches and general managers. Follow the actions. The actions of the Washington football team this offseason very clearly communicate, again, A, we didn't like what we had at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. B, we may have liked, but we certainly did not love what was available in free agency. And C, we do now like what we have at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. Talking about John Bates and Samis Reyes. And we'll see if Washington is proven right on this stuff. But I think there is a benefit of the doubt 
that Washington does deserve when it comes to the tight end position because of the stunning success of Logan Thomas last season, because of the track record of Washington's tight ends coach, Pete Hainer. Pete Hainer is a very established and well-respected tight ends coach. He did a lot for Vernon Davis in his development with the San Francisco 49ers, did a lot for Greg Olson in his development with the Carolina Panthers, and obviously has been a part of the development of Logan Thomas here in Washington. Here's the bottom line, though. It is imperative that Washington have more depth at tight end this upcoming season. Logan Thomas was great in 2020, but A, what if he gets hurt in 2021? B, what if he, for whatever reason, slumps in 2021? I don't expect that, but you never know. C, Logan is set to be an unrestricted free agent next offseason, so you would like to have an option beyond him in terms of a TE1 going into 2022. And D, it'd be nice to have two tight end sets this upcoming season in which both tight ends are true pass-catching threats. Understand the extent to which it was Logan Thomas and nothing else at tight end for Washington last season when it came to catching the football. So Logan Thomas in the 2020 regular season played on 92.65% of Washington's offensive snaps. He was incredibly durable. Thomas finished the 2020 regular season tied with J.D. McKissick for number two on Washington in targets at 110. Terry McLaurin was number one at 134. Washington's other tight ends, Jeremy Sprinkle, Marcus Ball, and Tameric Hemingway, combined for just six targets the entire regular season. So again, Logan Thomas, last regular season, 110 targets. Sprinkle, Ball, and Hemingway combined, just six targets. It was Logan Thomas and nothing else in terms of viable pass-catching threats for Washington at the tight end position last season. That's got to change. Whether it's John Bates or Samis Reyes or maybe Tameric Hemingway. He is still technically on the team. Tameric Hemingway, in case you're unfamiliar with him, going into his age 28 season, Washington initially signed Hemingway last September 17th to the team's practice squad. He spent the rest of the season with Washington, appeared in 10 games, had just one catch for 10 yards on two targets, was placed on the reserve slash injured list on December 9th due to a reported dislocated wrist that was suffered in that win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in week 13. He was taken by the Los Angeles Rams in the sixth round of the 2016 draft out of South Carolina State. He, prior to his time with Washington, spent time with the Rams, Denver Broncos, and, wait for it, Carolina Panthers. But as we just saw with Marcus Baugh, just because you came from the Panthers doesn't mean that you last with the Washington football team. Baugh just learned that lesson We'll see what ends up happening with Hemingway. But bottom line, you need depth. You need more than one guy on whom you can rely. And Washington, it certainly seems like, feels like it has potentially found a guy or maybe multiple guys in Bates and Reyes. We continue talking Washington football team right now. The team on Monday announcing that rookie minicamp will be taking place this Friday and Saturday, 1045 a.m. practice for each day. Ron Rivera will conduct a press conference after each practice, Ron will be speaking. Don Ron, the Don, will be speaking not once but twice. So we'll have a lot to get into on this coming Monday show. At the head of Washington's 2021 draft class, of course, is the team's first round pick, Kentucky linebacker Jamin Davis, who Washington took with the number 19 overall selection. And here to tell us more about Jamin Davis now is a man who knows Jamin well. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, the radio voice of Kentucky football and basketball, Tom Leach. Tom, it's great to talk to you. How are you? Doing well. So as someone who calls Kentucky football games and knows Jamin Davis well, were you surprised to see him get drafted where he did, number 19 overall by Washington? If you'd asked me back after he declared at 
the, after the Gator Bowl, if I thought he was a first round pick, I, I would have definitely said no. I, I kind of thought, uh, I think a lot of us around here thought he would be back because last year was his first season as a starter and he uh, really wasn't expected to start coming into the season until, uh, player named Chris Oates, uh, so had a very serious medical condition that took him off the field and that gave, uh, you know, Jamin had played a lot of, uh, the year before, but, uh, that was the, uh, thing that happened that opened the door for him to be a starter. But he, and he played tremendously well. I had many double digit tackle games, uh, always had good ball skills for a linebacker. So, uh, we'd seen that even in, in, uh, spring games and, previous years where he would uh, be one of those guys who would find his way to some interceptions. Um, but, you know, just thinking, okay, this, this guy's a, a first-year starter. He'll be back, have a big year next year for Kentucky, and uh, then who knows. Uh, but I'm certainly far from an NFL expert, and so uh, while I saw a, a guy that, uh, you know, was was uh, promising and a, and a rising star in Kentucky, uh, clearly when the NFL guys got into studying his tape and seeing what an athlete that he is and, um, you know, the combination of, you know, brains and athleticism, uh, he just started soaring up the charts and then uh, became pretty clear that he made the right decision in leaving uh, Kentucky for the draft. Yeah, no question about that. With Jamin Davis's 2020, his lone season as a Kentucky starter, I mean, it's one thing for us as Washington fans to read the stats, see the highlights, but from your perspective as someone who watches every snap, how good was Jamin Davis in 2020? Yeah, he was... Uh, Outstanding. I mean, he was uh, Kentucky's uh, best defensive player, uh, and it was a good defense. Um, he, uh, as I said, had several double-digit tackle games. He could, uh, you know, the speed to he played inside linebacker. But he had the speed to go side to side, and uh, I would think I saw where Coach Rivera saw a quote where he thought that they could uh, Jamin could play uh, multiple positions on their linebacker line, and that, that would make sense to me. I could certainly see him as a guy that would you know fit into uh, multiple roles, and he's so good uh, with uh, the uh, as I said with the ball skills that I think he'd uh, he'd be great in, in pass coverage and uh, to cover you know whoever he would be. As to cover, so uh, and he's um, you know just a tremendous uh, worker, uh, very you know great team guy. It was never a, a problem here, even though obviously he was talented. He was behind other players, and he just kept working. And I, I would think at uh, you know, I mean you obviously want more than this. Uh, what I'm going to say as a from a first round guy, but he's going to excel in uh, in special teams if he's asked to be in that area. You mentioned Davis in pass coverage. There has been a thing for years with the Washington football team of linebackers struggling in pass coverage. How did Jamin Davis do in pass coverage at Kentucky, and was he back in coverage a lot? You know, I, I don't know uh, specifically, you know, the uh, to, to break it down for you in great detail as far as your percentage of, of times he was in coverage. I know he didn't, he didn't come off the field on, on third downs, third and long, anything like that. Uh, and he uh, was able to get you know, an interception return for a touchdown down at Tennessee where he uh, dropped back in, in zone coverage. And uh, Kentucky played a lot of zone uh, last year. And so he was really good at dropping back uh, under, on that underneath coverage and uh, being able to, to make interceptions or to uh, get deflections. He um, 
uh, you know, was very, very skilled as a in pass coverage. And yeah, I would imagine they'll probably get try to put a little more weight on him as far as the the run stopping component of it. Um, but uh, you know, he's certainly had plenty of tackles in a league like the SEC, so he, he did okay against the run too. Yeah, and the numbers certainly back that up. We're talking Jamin Davis with the radio voice of Kentucky football, Tom Leach. So you've called Kentucky football games since 1997. Where would you say that Jamin Davis' 2020 season ranks in terms of the best seasons that you've seen from Kentucky defensive players? You know, I'd have to, to give that more thought as far as ranking it. It was very, I would say it would be, you know, top 10. Uh, but Kentucky's had, uh, some really good linebackers. Wesley Woodyard, long time NFL career. Wesley, uh, played here and had some great seasons. Um, you know, Kentucky, uh, just, you know, had Josh Allen. If you count him as a, as a linebacker, Kentucky played a 3-4, so he's a, you know, kind of a hybrid, half defensive end, half linebacker. I think kind of goes back and forth, um, for the, uh, Jags, so he's probably more considered a defensive end, but to consider him a linebacker, um, if we're just talking Jamin ranking among the linebackers, you know, if you're talking about all defensive players, Josh would probably, would certainly be at the head of the list. Um, but they've, they've had a lot of good linebackers even before Stoops got here. Um, and uh, so that Marty Moore going way back into the 80s, long time NFL career. So uh, in a place that has had uh, some uh, he had a pretty good amount of success with linebackers. Uh, he, I would think he, just off the top of my head, would certainly be in the, the top ten for the way that he played last season. And uh, as I said, kind of, especially coming, uh, I wouldn't say from nowhere, because he, he worked his way. He wasn't a starter previously, but definitely played a lot. So it wasn't a surprise that uh, you know he became a starter, but I think probably a, a, a little bit of a surprise that he performed at the level to which he did. Yeah, why wasn't Jamin a starter until the 2020 season, his redshirt junior season? I just it, it's a tribute to what uh, Stoops has built here. He had uh, veteran guys in front of him. Um, he had a guy named uh, Cash Daniel that was a multi-year starter, and and to Jamin's credit, he actually was uh, working in a lot, almost uh, sharing a position with Cash by the uh, end of uh, the previous season. Um, so he was. Uh, you know, coming on strong, but there were just veteran guys that had more years in the program ahead of him in a position where they uh, had a, a, a good level of talent. I mean, they've, you know, Bud Dupree's and Darius Smith, they've had some uh, uh, good players in the front seven in the time Stoops has been here. It's so interesting with the rise of Jamin Davis because it's almost like there are two parts. There's what he did in the 2020 season, and then there's what took place in the pre-draft process, including that tremendous performance at the Kentucky Pro Day. Washington really made it a point to draft a bunch of guys who were great in terms of speed and athleticism, and Jamin Davis certainly fits that description. Were you at all surprised at how great Jamin Davis did, though, at that Kentucky Pro Day? I mean, he really killed it. No, I can't say that it was. I mean, maybe, you know, that uh, some of the, like the 40 time, I mean, that uh, maybe I, I certainly would have predicted maybe the exact numbers that he got, but I'm not surprised that he did well uh, because he had uh, had a great work ethic in his time here. And um, so I, I knew he would uh, go all out because he knew, you know, what the payoff could be if he uh, did well. And uh, he, you know, the thing was, I've heard uh, one of his, uh, his linebacker coaches talking about this, that uh, Jamin told him, uh, you know, the numbers he was going to hit uh, before the pro day. And he did. 
uh, he met or exceeded what his expectations were. So he had put in the work and he, you know, he had the confidence that came from having put in the work. And, you know, he's just, you know, he's a guy that you, you look at his, uh, body, uh, you know, remember a guy, uh, this is going back a ways, but around here, we're not too far from Cincinnati. So, um, a, a name that just comes to the top of my mind is a guy named David Fulcher, who was built like a linebacker, but played safety. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because he, you know, a great uh, speed, and I think uh, you know, Jamin kind of looks to be his guy like that. He's tall, rangy, and uh, you know uh, I think it's going to be a, an outstanding linebacker. But I mean, he's got uh, speed that uh, you know that you could see him in, in some systems, I guess, as having the uh, the level of athleticism to, to even play, you know, as a strong safety or something. So he, he just is a you look at him and. Um, you're not surprised how, you know, cut that he is that he could uh, be a tremendous athlete. As you probably know, the Washington football team has had a lot of off-the-field issues. Uh, Ron Rivera has talked openly about resetting the culture. The stuff that's out there about Jamin as a person is great to see. What can you tell us about Jamin the person? Yeah, uh, what I know, and I, I will say, you know, we didn't get as close to the last year because of uh, COVID, but... Uh, uh, you know, we, uh, normally, in normal years would travel with the team. Um, and he is, and I've interviewed him and he is a, you know, yes sir, no sir guy. Um, uh, you know, uh, you can tell, uh, as a, uh, uh, phrase my, my parents would have usually been raised right. You know, he's just a, a very respectful, uh, young man that has busted his tail to get to where he is and yet been a great team guy along the way. Didn't, uh, complain when the opportunity wasn't there, just kept working, did what they asked him to do, whatever role it was, special teams, etc. And so I think he's going to be a great team guy in terms of, you know, the, the locker room, the community, etc. And uh, I would be shocked if, uh, if Jamie gave him any problem whatsoever. Final question. I appreciate your time. Uh, so you call both Kentucky football and basketball games. I get that basketball will never not be the number one sport at Kentucky, but to what extent is there now more interest in Kentucky football, given the success in recent seasons? I know that 2020 wasn't a great season, but prior to that, four consecutive winning seasons. Yeah, there's a. I think the the passion here for Kentucky football is probably underappreciated outside the Commonwealth. This is going way back, but in the 70s, Kentucky hadn't been to a bowl game in 25 years, and uh, they uh, had a great team. Uh, in the late seventies with uh, a couple of NFL guys named Derek Ramsey, and, uh, Art Still and Jerry Bland. And so, uh, it's a long-winded way to say that they took 37,000 people to a Peach Bowl game when they played in the first bowl game in 25 years. And, um, it's just still legendary in Atlanta. Um, and when they went to the, their first New Year's Day bowl game, uh, when Tim Couch was the quarterback in uh, January 1st, 1999, at, in Tampa, they took about 30,000 people down to that bowl game from Kentucky down to Florida. So there is tremendous passion for football. Uh, there just hadn't been a lot of uh, opportunities to get on the big stage for it to be showcased. And so I think um, it – is trending that way now. They had a big showing uh, fan support wise at the Citrus Bowl a couple of years ago with Benny Snell and Josh Allen and that crew. And, uh, now they're, you know, Stoops has got this going to the point where Kentucky believes it's, 
closing in on, on contending for an East title and getting to play in the SEC championship game for the first time. And, uh, when that happens, uh, it'll be, you know, another 35, 40,000 people that will go down to Atlanta. So there's, uh, great passion for football. Obviously, Kentucky basketball is, um, has all the history and the tradition, but there's a, a great passion for football here. It's just that uh, they haven't had a lot of chances to showcase it quite so much as they have in basketball. Well, it's great to get your perspective on Jamin Davis, and uh, thank you so much for your time. All the best to you. Yeah, looking forward to following his, uh, his career. I think he'll do great. The streak continued on Monday night. The streak of wild, close, and high-scoring games for the Wizards. I said the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Thank you, Stephen A. Smith. But this time, we did have a Wizards loss. Wizards falling to 32 and 37, a 125-124 loss at the Atlanta Hawks, who are good. They improved to 38 and 31, or fifth in the Eastern Conference. Wizards now are back to being 10th in the East, half game behind the Indiana Pacers for ninth. The Pacers won on Monday night, a 111-102 victory at the Cleveland Cavaliers. Wizards are a game and a half behind the Charlotte Hornets for eighth in the East. Wizards still do look like a certainty to be in the playing tournament, but getting the eight seed got tougher with that loss on Monday night. Wizards have just three regular season games left, back at the Hawks on Wednesday night at seven, then home to the lowly Cleveland Cavaliers Friday night at seven, when we will have increased capacity at Capital One Arena. More on that next segment. Then the Wizards are home to the Charlotte Hornets on Sunday. Time TBD. So this game on Monday night, Wizards led by one at the half, 62-61. They then got more than doubled up in the third quarter. Wizards lost the third quarter, 35-17. Wizards trailed by 19 points early in the fourth quarter at 181, but ended the game on a 43-25 run. Ultimately did end up trailing for the entire fourth quarter, but that was some kind of comeback by the Wizards in the fourth quarter, and the comeback, not surprisingly, was led by Russell Westbrook, who passed Oscar Robertson for the most career regular season triple-doubles in NBA history. 182 now is the number for the man known as Brody in his NBA career when it comes to regular season triple-doubles. Oscar Robertson, 181. Westbrook now, the new number one at 182. Extended his single season and career franchise records with his 36th triple-double. Finished with, get this, 28 points, 21 assists versus three turnovers, and 13 rebounds. A triple-double of 28, 21, and 13, and the 21 assists came versus three turnovers. This was not one of these cheapy triple-doubles where you get, you know, 10, 11, and 10. No, this was 28, 21, and 13, and it was an efficient performance by Westbrook. Look, I've been the first to say it. Russell Westbrook, for so much of his career, has been an inefficient player. That's why some of the triple-double stuff can be overrated. Westbrook has been more efficient here as the Wizards have played better. And Westbrook on Monday night, again, 21 assists versus three turnovers. He shot the three well, went three of seven on threes, seven of 15 on twos, and five of five on free throws. Just an incredible run that Russell Westbrook is in the midst of. I mentioned that fourth quarter. Wizards ended up winning the fourth quarter, 45-29. Westbrook in just the fourth quarter nearly had a triple-double. 11 points, 10 assists versus no turnovers, and six rebounds. So first of all, like I said, nearly had a triple-double in just the fourth quarter, 11, 10, and six. But how about that? 10 assists versus no turnovers in the fourth quarter 
for Westbrook. He had a big seven-foot driving floater in the paint to cut the Wizards' deficit to one at 125-124 in the final minute. Looked like he got fouled by the Maryland product, Kevin Herter, the Red Mamba, the man with one of the great nicknames in all of pro sports, the Red Mamba. Uh, That was painful to see Westbrook not get the call there. And then the final shot of the game, a missed 25-foot right-wing pull-up three off a big block by Hole Neto and then a big defensive rebound by Daniel Gafford. Westbrook went up for the shot with still like three seconds left on the clock, so he rushed it. He didn't have to do that. He should have driven to the basket. Three-point shooting, even though I know it was good on Monday night. That's not Westbrook's forte. Drive to the hoop, at least try to get the call, if not also get the bucket. Uh, Westbrook didn't do that, so I thought that was a mistake. But it's hard to sit here right now and criticize Russell Westbrook with the run that he's been on, especially when he considered the Wizards were without Bradley Beal on Monday night. He did not play due to a left hamstring strain. Wizards are at one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference and nearly end up pulling it off despite being down by 19 in the fourth quarter. Westbrook carried the team in that fourth quarter. One more time, in just the fourth quarter, 11 points, 10 assists versus no turnovers and six rebounds. Speaking of Beal, by the way, did you see what happened with him on Twitter late on Monday night? Beal, after the game, destroyed Kent Bazemore of the Golden State Warriors. Kent Bazemore, who, by the way, went to Old Dominion, had taken a shot at Beal in talking about his scoring race with Steph Curry. Bazemore, quote, 49 points in 29 minutes. That's a reference to Steph scoring 49 points in 29 minutes, 20 seconds, in a 136-97 blowout of the Oklahoma City Thunder this past Saturday night. So says Bazemore, again, quote, 49 points in 29 minutes. That's unreal. We got guys hurting hamstrings to keep up, end quote. I.E. Beal hurt his hamstring in that 50-point performance in the 133-132 overtime win at the Indiana Pacers on Saturday night. Well, Beal unloaded on Bazemore on Twitter. I'll just read to you what Beal said over multiple tweets. Quote, LOL, should I let him live or really go off? You don't know me or S about me, bruh. You don't know why I go out there and play it and damn sure ain't for another man's approval. You a straight lame, but it don't surprise me coming from you. That's what yo type do. It's funny you say that because your man's admittedly checked my numbers before the game, but I'm chasing. Shut your ass up. End quote. Testify, brother Beal. Oh, my brother. Testify. That's right. I got a kick out of that. Bradley Beal going nuclear on Kent Bazemore on Twitter after the game on Monday night. But look, no Beal for the Wizards on Monday night. You're still without two other starters. This kind of gets forgotten. But Denny Abdia done for the season. Right ankle fracture that was suffered, interestingly enough, in a win over the Golden State Warriors at Capital One Arena on April 21st. And Thomas Bryant has long since been lost. He remains out due to a partially torn left ACL that was suffered all the way back on January 9th. And yet still, the Wizards went toe-to-toe at the Hawks on Monday night. Westbrook clearly had a lot to do with that. This was another in a long line of recent close, high-scoring wild games for the Wizards. 125-124 loss at the Hawks on Monday night. That aforementioned 133-132 overtime win at the Indiana Pacers last Saturday night. The 131-129 overtime win over the Toronto Raptors in Tampa last Thursday night. The 135-134 loss at the Milwaukee Bucks last Wednesday night. The 154 
141 win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena now two Monday nights ago. The 125-124 loss at the Dallas Mavericks on Saturday night, May 1st. On and on we can go. There was a 146-143 overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena on April 26th. It has been some kind of ride if you're a Wizards fan over these last few weeks. It has mostly been a good ride if you're a Wizards fan over these last few weeks. I mean, even with this loss at the Hawks on Monday night, Wizards still are 15-5 and over the team's last 20 games. Wizards got beaten on the boards big time, though, on Monday night. Got out-rebounded by the Hawks 55-42, including having eight offensive rebounds to the Hawks' 13. The Wizards finished with 12 second-chance points to the Hawks' 22. And how about this? The Hawks have one of the better rebounding big men in the NBA in Clint Capella. He finished with 22 rebounds. The Wizards' three centers, quote-unquote, Daniel Gafford, Robin Lopez, and Alex Len, right? Scott Brooks has been going with this three-headed monster at center and Gafford, Lopez, and Len. Those three guys on Monday night, a combined 11 rebounds. So those guys combined for 11. Capella himself had 22. Capella himself doubled up the rebounding output from Gafford, Lopez, and Len on Monday night. Wizards also got blown away at the free throw line. Wizards went 9 of 11 on free throws. The Hawks went 23 of 26 on free throws. So it's not like the Wizards were bad on their free throws. It's that the Wizards were not getting the line with nearly the frequency that the Hawks did. Wizards had a hard time defending without fouling. I mean, Trey Young, 13 of 13 on free throws. John Collins, 7 of 7 on free throws. But the Wizards did a lot well. I mean, like I said, rallied from a 19-point fourth quarter deficit. Didn't ever tie the game, but still made it super close. Wizards for the game shot 51% from the field, including 13 of 26 on threes. Wizards actually defended the three overall well, with the exception of one guy. Wizards held the Hawks to 10 of 30 on threes. The problem was Bogdan Bogdanovich went 7 of 12 on threes. The rest of the Hawks, 3 of 18 on threes. Wizards had just nine turnovers. Hawks only had 12. And the Wizards had 16 fast break points, so the Hawks five. So there remains a lot to like with the Wizards game in and game out. Now, the Wiz didn't get a lot out of their other three starters when you look at uh, Westbrook and Rui Hachimura. Hachimura was pretty good, 20 points, 9 and 19 shooting, although he had just three rebounds and he had a killer traveling turnover with 114 left in the fourth quarter and the Wizards trailing by three at 123. 120. But at least he did give you some points. The rest of the Wizards starters, I mean, Howell Neto did have 12 points on 6 of 11 shooting, but Alex Len gave you next to nothing as a starter. Just only played for 12 minutes, 3 seconds. That's been the case with him. He starts, but he doesn't play a ton. Had just 2 points, 3 rebounds, did not play at all in the 4th quarter. Garrison Matthews started with Beal out, uh, but Matthews played for just 13-35. Didn't do much. He didn't play at all in the 4th quarter. But the Wizards bench, again, came up big. That's been a consistent theme over these last few weeks. Davies Bertans, who has not had a good season, had a good game on Monday night. Five of nine on threes, finished with 15 points, four rebounds, and a team best plus minus rating of plus 10 in 31 minutes, nine seconds off the bench. And Bertans was huge in the fourth quarter. Westbrook was the Wizards MVP in the fourth quarter. Bertans was a close second, to be honest with you. Four of five on threes. I mean, you win a fourth quarter, 45-29. Bertans in that fourth quarter, four of five on threes. Is Smith who has been reborn over the last few weeks. He was good on Monday night, two or three on threes, five and nine on twos, 16 points, three rebounds, two steals, and 23.07 off the bench. Robin Lopez was good, at least in terms of scoring, 18 points, nine of 15 shooting, though just three rebounds in 21.16 off the bench. Daniel Gafford gave you four points, one or two shooting, five rebounds in 14.41 off the bench. And Chandler Hutchison, gave you some stuff off the bench. Six points, two of four shooting, five rebounds, three steals, and two blocks in 25-08 off the bench. It is very hard these days to be mad at the Wizards, even when they lose, 
like I said, almost certainly going to be in this play-in tournament. It's a matter of seeding at this point. Three games left, another one at the Hawks come Wednesday night at 7. Then hopefully you get an easy breezy win over the Cleveland Cavaliers at Capital One Arena on Friday night. We'll see. I mean, you never know with the Wizards, right? Losing to a bad Cavaliers team at home in the penultimate game of a regular season in which you're making a playoff push would be so on brand for the Wizards. But hopefully this is a new Wizards team that we're seeing here over these last few weeks. And then potentially a huge game to wrap up the Wizards regular season. Home to the Charlotte Hornets on Sunday. A time that remains TBD. All right, so I mentioned it last segment. There will be fans, more fans, coming to games in Washington, D.C., and that is a very good thing. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser on Monday announcing that the city plans to lift a number of COVID-19 pandemic-induced restrictions on May 21st with a full reopening of the city on June 11th. So here's what we're looking at when it comes to the Nationals, Wizards, and Capitals. In accordance with this announcement on Monday, the Nationals announced that they have been granted a waiver to expand capacity at Nationals Park to 36% beginning on May 14th, with full capacity being allowed beginning on June 11th. Nationals have been operating at 25% capacity. And then when it comes to the Capitals and the Wizards, in accordance with the announcement from D.C. on Monday, Monumental Sports and Entertainment, of course, the parent company for the Caps and the Wiz announcing that D.C. has granted approval to increase capacity at Capital One Arena for Caps and Wiz games from 10% capacity to 25% capacity, so about 5,000 fans per game, beginning with the Wizards' next-to-last game of the regular season against the Cleveland Cavaliers this coming Friday night, May 14th. The Caps will see a bump up to 25% capacity at their home games, beginning with the Stanley Cup playoffs. And we know that Game 1 of the Stanley Cup playoffs for the Caps will be Saturday night, 7-15 start against the Boston Bruins. Both the Caps and the Wiz will be allowed to have full capacity at home games beginning on June 11th. This is quite the turnaround when you think about where we just were when it came to Washington, D.C. and what was being allowed by Mayor Muriel Bowser. I mean, going back to the Nationals, remember the slow, laborious process for the Nats having fans at games on Nationals Park. The Nats on late Monday night, March 15th, announced that Quote, after extensive discussion and planning with the government of the District of Columbia health experts and Major League Baseball, end quote, the Nats were going to have a reduced capacity of 5,000 fans allowed for games at Nationals Park. The Nats were the last Major League team to announce a plan for fans attending games to begin the regular season. Then D.C. on April 9th granted approval for the Nats to have a 25% capacity games at Nationals Park. That approval came off waiver requests that the Nats had submitted on March 19th and March 24th. So you submit the waiver requests March 19th, March 24th. You don't get the approval until April 9th. Take your time, uh, Washington, D.C. Remember, Max Scherzer was a very vocal critic of the way that D.C. had handled fans at games at Nationals Park. After the Nats season opening 6-5 win over the Atlanta Braves at Nats Park on April 6th, Scherzer after the game, quote, I don't understand why we can't have fans in the upper deck here. We can have more fans in here safely. I would love an explanation, end quote. And then Max following the Nats 3-0 loss at the Los Angeles Dodgers on April 11th, talking about the expansion to 25% capacity, quote, that's what the CDC says. Great. We're following what the CDC says. I guess you get a pat on the back. End quote. So, old Scherzer was not happy with Mayor Bowser with this stuff. And then when it comes to the Capitals and the Wizards, that had gotten testy as well. Remember the statements that were put out by Monica Dixon 
of monumental sports and entertainment and also by the Capitals and Wizards owner Ted Leonsis, uh, really critical of DC for not being more aggressive and allowing fans at games at Capital One Arena. Again, major delay in terms of when a waiver request was received versus when the waiver request was actually addressed. Monumental Sports and Entertainment submitted a waiver request on March 11th, didn't get approval for 10% capacity for games at Capital One Arena until April 9th. So waiver request submitted March 11th, approval finally granted on April 9th, and it was just on April 5th that Bowser in a press conference said that she was not any closer to allowing the Nationals to have more than 5,000 fans per game at Nationals Park or the Capitals and Wizards to have any fans at games at Capital One Arena. That was just on April 5th. This announcement from Washington, D.C. came on Monday, which was May 10th. I mean, think about that. That's quite a turnaround, isn't it? From zero fans to now a full reopening come June 11th. So one of two things happened here, right? Either A, We just completely turned around things when it came to getting people vaccinated and where we stand with the pandemic. Or B, and this is the right answer, Mayor Bowser understood that she was wrong to slow walk this as much as she did and that it was not politically favorable to keep things shut down as she was. And so she's making the right call here to open things up. So, I mean, better late than never, I suppose. Uh, but it's, you know, to me, it's kind of a shame that it had to end up being this way. But look, the point is we're getting to where we need to be. This area, as I keep pointing out, and I think it's an important point to keep making, has done a good job, relatively speaking, with the COVID-19 pandemic. More and more people are getting vaccinated. I told you I am due for shot number two come Wednesday. So hopefully I'm still in one piece come uh, the Thursday installment of this podcast. But yeah, man, it's going to be really cool to have more fans at games. Now, I do think it's going to not just be like uh, turning a light switch on and all of a sudden you're jam-packed at Nationals Park and jam-packed at Capital One Arena, but we can certainly have more fans than we have been having. The protocols will remain. It's not like this is going to be, you know, back to the way things were pre-pandemic. You're still going to have to wear masks. There's still going to be all kinds of mitigation efforts out there, but the people of this area should be trusted to behave responsibly. And, and this is maybe the most important thing of all, keeping things shut down doesn't equate with keeping people safer, okay? Shutting things down doesn't mean less cases and less debt. We have seen this over and over again throughout the pandemic. There's been a lot of counterintuitive stuff when it comes to COVID-19. We know so much more today as compared to a year ago. I mean, what has happened in Florida and Texas should not be overlooked. Florida and Texas are the ultimate examples of opening things up doesn't lead to more cases, doesn't lead to more deaths. Now, it can if you don't do it properly, but to say like one thing definitely leads to the other, opening things up definitely leads to more cases and more deaths isn't correct. And in fact, there's an argument to be made that keeping things shut down leads to more cases and more deaths because we now know the spread of the virus, especially in these more recent waves, has come via in-home activity. You know, people visiting other people in their homes. The spread of the virus is not being perpetuated that much by, you know, restaurants being opened up, gyms being open, people going to beaches, etc. Like, we know these things now. It's driven me nuts throughout this how many people have talked about, we got to follow the science, follow the data. And when the science and data run counter to your politics, you don't want to follow the science and data. You ignore the science and data. You know, like it just that to me is so the wrong way to be. There has been a lot of politics involved in how COVID-19 has been dealt with by our leaders and been covered by our media. And it's a real shame that it ended up being this way. But thankfully, we are coming out of the pandemic. We're not there yet. But we are close. We're getting closer. And good to see that more fans are going to be allowed to attend games. And a full reopening of the district is coming on June 11th. Hopefully, D.C. can do something special, really make this a big deal 
get our local businesses back up and running, hopefully as well as can be reasonably anticipated. And maybe, just maybe, by the start of the NFL season, where if not totally back to normal, then very close to being back to normal. We'll see. Nice job by the Orioles on Monday night, avoiding a four-game sweep to the Major League-leading Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A 4-1 victory as, yes, the O's were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Thank you, Joe Angel. Been a while since we've been able to play that. O's get to 16-19 and on the season. So a few things that stood out with the win on Monday night. First of all, great to see Ryan Mountcastle end up having the series that he had. Ryan Mountcastle over the four games against the Red Sox, seven of 16 with two home runs, a double, and four singles. Mountcastle in the win on Monday night as a starting DH and number four batter. First pitch leadoff homer in the bottom of the second, had a single in the bottom of the sixth inning. You go back to the Orioles' 4-3 loss to the Red Sox on Sunday afternoon. Mountcastle in that game, starting first baseman, number five batter, two out first pitch, RBI single, bottom of the first, two out RBI double, in the bottom of the eighth. Game one of the series, the 6-2 loss to the Red Sox on Friday night. Mountcastle full count leadoff homer in the bottom of the sixth and two singles. You know, Mountcastle had really been struggling this season, and maybe he still will be. We'll see. I mean, this is only one series, but Mountcastle came into the series with an atrocious slash line on the year. Batting average at 202, on base percentage at 233, slugging percentage at 284. I mean, those are brutal numbers and really disappointing numbers for a guy who the Orioles took with the number 36 overall pick in the 2015 draft, was ranked by MLB Pipeline this past January as the number 77 prospect in all of baseball, and a guy who last season was quite good over 140 major league plate appearances, batted 333 to 386 on base, slugged 492, hit five home runs. So good to see Mountcastle have the series that he ended up having. And this is what you have to do if you're the Orioles. You are a tanking team. You are a rebuilding team. You got to put guys like Ryan Mountcastle out there, let them take their lumps, and hopefully see those guys get better as the season goes on. Perhaps that's what we're seeing here with Ryan Mountcastle and what he just did against the Red Sox. Also, I got to note this. Cedric Mullins, who has been the Orioles MVP so far this season, another MVP-like moment for him in this win on Monday night. So first of all, Mullins over the course of the series, starting center fielder, number one batter for the Orioles in every game. He goes 4-16 with a triple, a double, two singles, and two walks. And how about the triple, which came on Monday night? A leadoff triple in the Orioles' two-run eighth inning. Mullins sent a fly ball into no man's land in shallow left field. The Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts failed to make a running catch, then juggled the baseball. Mullins, because he hustled from the get-go, made it all the way to third base, okay? This was as unconventional of a triple as you'll ever see. I mean, most triples, right, are off the wall, in the gap, down the line, etc. Mullins hits a triple on a fly ball to shallow left field, okay? Now, he had some luck with Bogarts fumbling with the baseball, but still, a tremendous job by Mullins. That's why you hustle, because you never know Mullins hustles from the get-go, makes it to third base to get the triple, and then scores two batters later on a Trey Mancini first pitch RBI single. Cedric Mullins has been terrific, 153 plate appearances on the season, batting average of 312, on base percentage of 373, slugging percentage of 536. Good start for Jorge Lopez in the 4-1 win over the Red Sox on Monday night. He has not had a good season. He was good on Monday night. One run in five and two-thirds innings, five strikeouts versus just four hits, two doubles and two singles, no walks. Did have a hit by pitch, did have a wild pitch, but 52 of his 71 pitches were strikes. He threw just 19 balls the entire outing. Great job by Lopez. Like I said, he had not been in a good place. I mean, he came into the game with an ERA of 649 
over six starts on the season, but did a good job against a good Red Sox lineup on Monday night. Uh, while we're talking starting pitching, Orioles on Monday did option Zach Lowther back to AAA Norfolk, recalled Keegan Aiken from AAA Norfolk. Remember, Lowther was the guy who started game two of the series, the 11-6 loss on Saturday night. Well-regarded prospect for the Orioles, struggled though in that game on Saturday night, seven runs in two into third innings. Lather already has been toggled back and forth between the minor league level and the major league level. I would anticipate seeing that as the season goes on, but not just him, but with a bunch of these guys, including someone like a Keegan Aiken. Also, Orioles bullpen, up and down series overall, but ended the series on a high note. Four Orioles relievers on Monday night combining, forget this, three and a third perfect innings with six strikeouts. Tanner Scott, Travis Lakin Sr., Paul Fry, and Cesar Valdez. Valdez was particularly impressive. Perfect ninth inning in which he struck out J.D. Martinez and Rafael Devers, who has torched the Orioles so far this season on a total of seven pitches. Valdez was dominant in that inning, and Valdez overall has been terrific so far this season. He now has an ERA of 123 and a whip of 0.95 over 14 and two-thirds innings, 17 strikeouts as well over those 14 and two-thirds innings. Next up for the O's, a two-game series at the New York Mets, who are first in the National League East at 16 and 13, have won five. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Straight. Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon, we believe that the pitching matchups will be as follows. Game one, Tuesday night at 7-10. John Means, first time pitching for him since the no-hitter, taking on Marcus Stroman. And then how about the pitching matchup, we believe, for Wednesday afternoon, a 12-10 first pitch. The former Met, the former Dark Knight of Gotham, Matt Harvey, going to be taking on Taiwan Walker as the Orioles, for once, can help out the Nationals with how the O's do in this two-game series at the Mets. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to 
GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Wednesday's installment of the podcast, a very special guest, former Washington tight end, Logan Paulson. He is tremendous on X's and O's, has been putting up some really insightful breakdowns on his Instagram, which is Logan underscore Paulson 82. We'll talk all about Washington's tight end situation, the quarterback situation, and much more. Also, we'll see if Washington has signed Charles Leno Jr. and or Bobby McCain. We'll have the Capitals regular season finale to chew on. Caps hosting their first round opponent in the Stanley Cup playoffs, the Boston Bruins, on Tuesday night. Nationals beginning a three-game series against their old pal Bryce Harper and the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. Orioles beginning a two-game series at the New York Mets on Tuesday night. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Oh, my brother, testify! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.